Good morning, everyone, or afternoon, or night. I don't know. When you listen to this, I always crush mine rather in the car or when I'm walking my dog, so it's always the morning. So, good morning. Here we go. Let's start it off bright and early. We are getting a new perspective this week with Dr. Katie Zabo. This wonderful woman has a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology and a Doctor of Chiropractics. She is just as brilliant as she is ambitious. Dr. Zabo sat down with me to answer all of my medical and technical questions that I could think of. I hit her with literally anything I could think of. Some of the questions we discussed are how important is rest and recovery? What is mechanical stress and how does it impact the body? I asked her to elaborate on oxygen levels in the blood, how much does altitude affect the body, and how to create an atmosphere of success. So continue on listening to this podcast if you want to hear all of her answers to those questions and more. But before you do that, go ahead and give this podcast five stars, leave a review, it means so much to me if you do that that's what gets this podcast more and more exposure the more reviews and five stars we get so thank you so much and i hope you guys enjoy this interview here you go so do you want to give a background on yourself and what you do yeah, of course. Uh, so yeah, my name is Dr. Katie Zabo. Um, I am a chiropractor. How I got here is a little bit of a long story. So shorten it up. I did my undergraduate degree um, at Master University. And then from there, I went to the chiropractor college uh, called the Canadian Memorial Chiropractor College to attain my doctor of chiropractic. Like I said, how I got here is a bit of a long road, uh, but shortening it up. I'm on the other side of the border. So I'm born and raised in a place called Sarnia, Ontario. To kind of give you a reference, it's about an hour north of Detroit, Michigan. So I grew up on a border city. Uh, so that's kind of where I started. I did a bunch of different sports growing up, everything from dance, boxing, rowing. Uh, now I just train for fun, and I, I really like working with athletics, so that's kind of where it got me here. And my goal was ultimately to help people. So long story short, that's that's how I am where I am today. So you said dance, boxing, and rowing. Those are very different activities. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it was quite the family shock, and I think my friends were very surprised, too, when I started showing up with black eyes after being a dancer for a while. But I, I need to change it up, and here we are. So I, uh, I trained, and I fought for a few years, and then I, I went to college from there. And, of course, uh, the college didn't really support boxing since it's a combat sport. So I, I needed something new on campus to do. So that's where I jumped into rowing, and, and then from there uh, I – I've tried to kind of continue with it, um, but hours don't necessarily match up with my clinic hours anymore, so now I just train for fun. Gotcha. Yeah. Were you able to translate any of the skills from one sport to the other? I mean, I think there's indirect skills that come with it. At the end of the day, I think uh, dance taught me a lot of discipline. And discipline, and I mean, I was at the studio seven days a week from the day I was there, the time I was done school to the rest of the night. So I think it taught me a lot of discipline, how to multitask, how to organize. I mean, my boxing coaches always laugh that I had good feet, um, I don't know if we want to attribute that to me being a dancer or not. I don't know. And I mean, truthfully, then that translating to, I, I'd say boxing was, like, you're, uh, boxing athletes are in incredible shape. They're unreal, the athleticism that comes out of it. So I think that helped translate into the rowing aspect of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, they're all, they're all very different all on their own. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> what drew you towards kinesiology and being a chiropractor? Yeah, awesome question. So I grew up knowing I wanted to help people. That was pretty much at the end of it. I knew I wanted to be in a field where I was working with people. Um, I'm I'm pretty social. I like to do that. Um, And I think through my own experiences of going through different 
athletic activities and recognizing if you had an injury, it can really impact your season. And I watched my friends go through it. I, I myself had various injuries, obviously. I, I find most healthcare providers typically have injuries. That's why we end up. <laughs> and I think from there, uh, I was looking for an undergraduate degree that would leave me multiple options. So KIN was a really good start. Um, it was going to teach me the fundamentals of science, fundamentals of anatomy, and basically give me a stepping stone. And while I was doing my undergraduate degree, I took those few years to really shadow every practitioner I could think of in the healthcare field. So you name it, physiotherapy, OT, nurses, I don't even, I the list goes on. I shadowed anybody and everybody that would let me follow them around for a day or two. And really, I found chiropractic gave me the scope of practice I wanted to. So I wanted to be able to diagnose and treat and really assess the patient from the beginning to end was really what I was looking for. Now, obviously, there are things where I need collaborations from other practitioners or healthcare people in healthcare that I work with. Um, but for the most part, being a, becoming a chiropractor gave me the scope of practice that would allow me to treat someone from beginning to end. Was there anything else that you were interested in going into since you shadowed yep. so many places? Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if every kid dreams of this. I grew up wanting to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Don't ask okay. me where that came from. It was really specific and it was really, really niche. I don't know. That was, that was kind of in my head. And truthfully, I think through a series of different events, I realized that becoming a medical doctor, specifically a surgeon, just wasn't something that was really actually what I wanted it to be. So it, it's, it's one of those things I, I looked from there. It was kind of an open plate. I have family members who are nurses um, and they are an incredible, every nurse out there is a godsend. But even their night shift hours, it was kind of, it was a balance of me looking at what do I want to do professionally and then how am I also going to balance that with a family life. And having grown up with two parents who are night shift workers, it can be, it can be really crazy. So I was kind of looking for the opportunity to still treat people and work in healthcare, but potentially have a bit more balance if you want to use that word. That's, I was just going to say that. So you're able to balance it all out. I mean, I hate using the word balance. Uh, I feel like I, I feel like balance is like this place of stillness where everything's magical and we're all aiming for it. And I think what I've really learned through my profession so far or through my career so far is realizing that it's, it's a scale. Some weeks you're going to have to grind and work is going to be the only thing you really have time for. And then there's going to be days where family and friends come first. And I think it's really just being able to go back and forth on that scale and not go to the extremes too often. Um, so obviously you got to put uh, your time and things you love all all the time. But yeah, so I, I'd say it's, it's, it's allowed me to find balance <laughs> in quotation marks there. Yeah, so we'll leave it there. <laughs> Were you looking to work more specifically in the sports that you played? Oh, good question. I, I don't even know really how I got here. I pretty much started looking at every sport. Like I just said, I like athletes. I like their ambition. I like their drive. And I like the timeline that I need to be better in X number of weeks. This mm-hmm. is, this is the thing I'm going. You need to help me. Like it, and it's very much, it's, uh, as a healthcare provider, I'm here to support athletes, right? I don't fix them. It's a team approach. We both have to put in the work, but I like the drive. Um, and having been in sports when I, when I'd sustained injuries and said, Hey, like I have two weeks, get me out there. Let's go. I really liked kind of that crunch time or that environment. So when I started recognizing I liked working with athletes in that environment, I started once again, similar to how I found my career, I started going into a variety of different sports to see what I'd like to work with. I mean, I think having background in certain sports was helpful. Um, I work with a group of dancers, and with every sport, there's certain lingo, right, and there's certain things to know. Um, but I do think when you're in a sport for a long enough time, you pick it up really quick. So I've I've happened to have a lot of experience with hockey, and that's just kind of, I started working with teams, really liked it, and stayed with some of the organizations that were fantastic for me. But truth, truth be told, I never played hockey. And I 
I, you're all going to laugh at me, but if I were to put skates on, I'm going to put figure skates on and you're going to laugh at me. So, I mean, I, I worked, I, what was it? I was with uh, one organization for five years um, in the GTHL, which uh, is the greatest Toronto hockey league. Um, it's the largest minor hockey organization in North America. Um, so I worked with them as a trainer for three years, two years. I actually ran one of the team's medical programs. And I've also done some work with female hockey as well with the uh, PWHL, which is another Ontario, sorry, Canadian term. So I, I'd say I just kind of fell into hockey, really liked it, loved the sport, um, love the injuries that also come back with the sport. Um, but I mean, I've, I've, I've kind of jumped around. So anything, rugby, soccer's fun, lacrosse, you name it. We've, I, I kind of jumped around. What is the coolest injury that you've seen so far? Is there anything that's really intrigued you? <laughs> cool or gory? What are, what are we looking for? <laughs> I guess it depends on what gets you more excited. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I, I will always preface is when I, when I see an injury, it means one of my players is down. So, I mean, I don't want injuries to happen because it means my team's hurt at the end of the day. And I, of course, you don't want to see your athletes be hurt. Um, but then there is also the clinical side of that's how my brain works. And I like, I like injuries, right? So I always preface it there. So I, I'm, I mean, rugby has a ton of blood. So I've seen lots of things there, like bleeding, bleeding ears, calling an ambulance, trying to figure that stuff out. Actually, I'd say BMX had some crazy injuries. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, BMX was wild. Broken bones left, right, and center. Uh, had, yeah, had a few unconscious situations, things like that. So I'd say BMX had some really intense things. And I'd say, sorry, I'm kind of all over the place. I would, I would say the coolest injury I've ever seen, I would say probably came out of BMX. Just okay. because there, there's some serious trauma happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. She's and rugby, yeah. All intense <laughs> sports. Very. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, too, the other thing I don't give enough credit to is I uh, ringette, because um, it's a, it's tech, uh, do you know what ringette is? No, I don't. No? Okay, if you don't know what a ringette is, you need to Google it. It's an awesome sport. Okay. It's a female-only sport. So there's there's a female empowerment moment there, and it's, it's in Canada, there's the National Ringette League, uh, which for them is, it's like our NHL, but unfortunately just not known as globally or internationally and not near as well funded but I did have a year to actually work with uh, the Cambridge Turbos and they won the season I was with them it was fantastic it was an amazing experience Um, but these these women are incredible athletes and I'd say it's supposed to be a non-contact game so they're on they're on skates um, so they're on skates they have a stick with a ring Um, it's supposed to be non-contact but they'll do full body checks similar to hockey but none of these girls have shoulder pads on so some also also some very interesting injuries that came out of that one in your Instagram bio, you put supporting my athletes to crush their goals. Yeah. How do you think that you go about supporting them? And then also, how do you adjust to the different goals in different sports? Yeah, great question. I, I think it really comes down to truthfully, uh, it depends on the individual athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're recognizing, first off is recognizing what everybody's goals are. Um, Because how I'm going to support one athlete might be completely different as to how I'm going to support a different athlete, um, which is part of the fun of it. So I think it's really, it's creating first, making sure the athlete feels heard. What are are really your goals and how am I going to help you get there? My biggest thing that I also try to do is create a very open... open and collaborative environment with all their healthcare providers or everybody else who's in their team. So I'm talking to coaches, I'm talking to parents, if that's part of their thing, I'm talking to nutritionists, psychologists, basically everybody that's in their healthcare team, because it's not just me. 
it's we all need to be on the same page. We all need to be striving for the same goals. And that's one thing I think a lot of athletes don't necessarily fully get the whole support from everybody or they've got 500 different people telling them 500 different things, um, which can leave athletes sometimes very confused with their recovery. So first off, yeah, so first off, I think it's identifying what their goals are. It's figuring out what's your team and how where's my role in your team? How do I really fit in and how can I help you? And then I think it really depends on also looking at is this, are you seeing me because you have a new injury? Are you seeing me because you have a chronic injury? Are you seeing me because your strength and conditioning program isn't what you think it should be and you want some tweaks on it? Or you, I, I think it really... It really depends what the athlete's looking for, but at the end of the day, I'm going to tailor exactly what I do uh, based on what what they where they are now and where they're looking to go. I like that. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Do you like? Are you a people person? Do you like interacting with everyone and working with all these different teams and stuff? Oh, I love it. I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a social butterfly. It's, it's where I strive. I like to interact with people. I mean, I think we all have our barriers of, of certain people. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think for the most part, I really, I do take a lot of enjoyment of interacting with everybody. And I, I think at the end of the day, to be really successful at this job, you need to be comfortable talking to a variety of different people um, and really being able to kind of, not mold yourself, but be able to recognize kind of how to talk to different individuals. Since you are working with athletes and everything and they push so hard every day, how important and how much do you stress rest and recovery? Yeah, huge. I think rest and recovery is one of the most underutilized tools out there. But I think it's it's underutilized and it's only good if you're using it correctly. Um, so I think it really, it really depends on what you're defining as rest sitting on a couch as your rest day and doing nothing for 24 hours or however long you deem your rest day I mean yes sometimes I think mentally we sometimes just need our down days those days do exist but I'd say for the most part if your rest day is only doing absolutely nothing I don't think we're really using the rest and recovery process for what it can be generally speaking uh, recovery days I, I do make sure my athletes are doing those days and Truthfully, recovery can be two things. It can be either kind of that recovery after, like immediately after, right? So if you had a game, how are you recovering right after that game? Mm-hmm. Or it can also be seen kind of as a training program as a specific day being your recovery day. And then I really think this comes kind of down into terminology or what you're, like I said, what you're defining as recovery. Um, so I'm a big active recovery uh, supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, what active recovery really is, is it's, it's making sure that you're doing something. Once you've done like a high intensity activity, it's that you're still doing activity, but just not to the same intensity. Um, so let's say if you're, if you're one of my runners, okay. So if you're running one of your long runs, it's not that the next day that you need to do absolutely nothing, but maybe the next day you go for a light jog for a quarter of the distance. If you're one of my skaters or my hockey players, maybe for your recovery day, you're doing a yoga that day. And you're going for a light walk still to keep your body moving. Um, or even to maybe you're still working on skills and drills, but it's not necessarily to the same intensity. So recovery and rest days, a lot of, I mean, I think there's the two extremes. There's the players who are like, give me a rest day every other day. And then there's the athletes who are training 100%, 100% of the time. And they see rest days as these days of, well, I'm not attaining my goals. And I think it's really kind of stepping back and recognizing your rest day is actually an active recovery and you can do everything to still make yourself better. Mm-hmm. We're working on mobility, skills, uh, recovery, just general. And, and truthfully, your body needs those recovery days to be able to heal and, and become stronger the next day. You, you can't train at 100%, 100% of the time. That's just not possible. And that leads into one of the other things that I saw on your page, which was talking about how the same exercise done one day can feel completely different or way harder another day. Do you think that's partially why? 
Yeah. So, I mean, why, why a workout can feel great one day and then feel absolutely horrible or like the worst torture of your life the next week uh, can vary on so many different factors. I, I mean, a, a simple analogy I, I think a lot of people have heard is that concept of a of glass being full, right? You can only handle so much in a day and then eventually your cup is going to overflow and you can't handle anymore. So when it comes to performance, it's not, it's not just as easy as, Hey, I want to work out today. I'm going to be great. I mean, I wish it was that, but it's not looking at other things. Like what's your stress levels like? How did you sleep last night? What's your nutrition like? How about your hydration? All of those things are going to affect whether you're able to perform well or not. So if you had a day where you're like, yeah, my sleep was phenomenal. I have no stress. I eat the most, the best meals out there. I'm beautifully hydrated. Your workout that day is going to be unreal. Then if you go to repeat that a week later, you had maybe two hours of sleep the night before. You're stressed out because exams, life, kids, whatever it is. Plus you have barely drank that day got in a banana for breakfast and now you're trying to work out obviously we can imagine we're not setting ourselves up quite for that same success so i do think there's a lot of variability but it's based on everything else in your environment rather than simply like oh it's the same workout i should feel the same you talked a little bit about sleep levels in there and we just got the apple watches so we've been like tracking everything that it offers on there exactly how important is a good sleep level Okay, so sleep, sleep is awesome. So when I talked about like kind of the rest and recovery, and when I, when I say rest, I typically, for me, I associate rest with sleep. That's just kind of where my brain goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and truthfully, it is so underutilized. It's the first thing I find a lot of us cut in our schedules because it takes the most amount of time. Right. If we need an extra hour to work out or to do whatever we're doing around the house, normally it kind of takes an hour out of our sleep. Um, I mean, generally speaking, the National Sleep Foundation, the NSF, uh, recommends, what is it? I think it's 18 to 64. You're supposed to have seven to nine hours. I think that's the age range. Uh, you might need to double check that, but I, I'm, I'm pretty close. They recommend seven to nine hours of sleep a night. And I mean, I think, I think that's awesome, right? Looking at exactly how many hours, but that's a pretty large range when you think about it. Like that's a two hour range there. But I think why they do that is because what you need for sleep could also, can be very different than the person beside you, right? Depending on your activity levels, your caffeine, things like that. So sleep though is, is so incredible. The hours are good. But if you're, if you're not getting good quality sleep, that's also a thing. So I mean, Apple watches, I think they're also tracking like how many times you wake up through the night and everything, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I haven't got one yet. It's on my possible Christmas. <laughs> I'm trying to debate if I want one. But at, at the end of the day, I think, I think sleep is important. Yes. The amount of hours, but also the quality of it, right? If you say you slept for 10 hours, but you were up every two hours, then truthfully that 10 hours isn't really going to be what it's going to be. Um, you really want to make sure you're getting as many, I mean, not to get too scientific on you, but you're trying to get as many of those sleep cycles as possible. Mm-hmm. And your your typical sleep cycle takes anywhere from like an hour and a half to two hours to get through. So if you're waking up every hour, you're not going to get through that whole full sleep cycle. And the best part of that sleep cycle that you're aiming for is actually at the end of that like hour and a half, two hour mark. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not to get too technical there. No, like I kind of knew some of that, but it's really cool to hear you talk about it and go more in depth on it. Because I knew there was like sleep cycles and like a certain part is when you're like deep asleep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So th- that cycle you mentioned, it's, it's REM. So REM, sli- REM sleep is what we're all aiming for. It's kind of like the golden sleep thing we're aiming for. So, And then the other thing that the watch offers is the oxygen levels, but yeah. I don't really know what that means or if that's if I want a good high one or a low, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, good question. It's, 
So I, I like Apple Watches because they provide people with a lot of information, mm-hmm. which is phenomenal. But there's also a point where a part of me wonders if it's information overload, depending on kind of who you are, right? So, I mean, general population, I don't know if they necessarily need to know their blood oxygen levels all the time. Um, but here, how about maybe I describe what they're looking at, and then we can kind of have a collective decision whether we think it's important or not. Okay. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, so blood blood saturation, so, okay, once again, you let me know if I'm going too technical here, but basically in, in our blood, we have red blood cells, okay? And on our red blood cells, we have these proteins, and they're called hemoglobins, okay? And they're basically responsible for picking up oxygen at your lungs, taking it out to your tissues, and dropping it off at your organs. So that's how we kind of get oxygen to our tissues. And then that same, like I said, that same protein on that blood uh, basically picks up carbon monoxide, or sorry, CO2, yeah, and brings it back to our lungs to kind of, that's how we get O2 in and out of our body, right? Mm -hmm. So what they're trying to see is how much oxygen or O2 is on all of those red blood cells. It's kind of what it breaks down to, okay? So, I mean, in a perfect world, I'd say I normally look at the percent of saturation, and I'm pretty sure that's what the Apple Watch is also looking at too. I mean, in an ideal world, you're looking for like high 90s. 95 up is kind of what you're aiming for, but this this is one of those things where there's three things that will change your oxygen saturation. So it's going to be either the environment you're in, right? Because how much oxygen is around you. Okay. How, how your lungs function because how much oxygen you can get into the body. Okay. And then from there, it's also going to be how well that blood's actually like, what's, what are your blood cells actually like to be able to get it to your organs? Does that kind of make sense? So, I mean, generally speaking, I mean, if you're doing altitude training, you might be curious on what your blood saturation is, right? Because if you're going up higher, you're going to have less oxygen available to you. So then maybe that's interesting. I mean, if you have a lung condition or something going on with your red blood cells, then maybe it's of interest as as well to you. So I'd say for the most part, the general public to me doesn't really need to be worried about their blood saturation. As long as you're sitting in, in the 90s, high 90s, I think you're okay. But I'd say for the most part, maybe athletes are starting to use it if they're doing the altitude training or maybe if someone has something like asthma or something going on like that where maybe they need to monitor actually how much oxygen they're getting into the body, maybe it's useful. But I, I do think it's a, it's it's really sciencey. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure my ex, like my exercise physiology friends could go into this way more in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd, I'd say for the general population, it might be a little overkill. Uh, but at the, at the same time, I mean, maybe you notice your watch, your blood saturation is way lower than nine. Like maybe it's down in like your sixties, which also you need to go see a doctor if it's in your sixties. Um, so I mean, I mean, maybe it's a nice way to self-trigger and see if we have something going on. I mean, people have also said like sleep apnea, something that can affect your blood levels. And for the most part, I mean, if you weren't monitoring that, you wouldn't know that your oxygen levels are dropping. Maybe, maybe it's a way that you can kind of self-monitor and see if that's a conversation you need to have with the doctor. But I'd say at the end of the, at the end of the day, you're going to use up information more or less to go to your doctor and say, Hey, what's up? So I, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a bit of an information overkill, but could still be useful. Uh, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Did you have a question? Yeah, I have a couple because I have to go to class, but I just have okay, a couple. That, that's like, right. The first one, you talked about altitude training right there. Yeah. yeah. So is there like an actual science behind this? Because I've had this, I'm from like elevation, but when I go down to sea level, it's only like two or three days that I feel like actually a difference. And after that, like my body feels like it adapts. Is that true or is it all mental or like what? Okay, so... I'll, I'll be honest in saying truthfully, exercise, like my exercise physiology friends would answer this question way better than I would. So truthfully, I don't fully know the answer behind that. I mean, I think the effects of it can only last so long. I just don't know off the top of my head exactly how long those effects last for. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Sorry, I, I wish you got a No, no, no. I just, I've forward. always yeah. said, because everyone says like, oh, you're so fortunate to be from elevation. And I'm like, no, it's mental. Like, 
I feel good for three days, then I'm the same as you guys. Like, and yeah, someone I, comes I, to Elevation, they feel bad for three days, and then they adapt. Yeah, there, there's an adaptation period for sure. I just don't know what the time is. Yeah. So truthfully, like where you're saying three days, I don't know yeah, if that's that could in the realm true. or not. <laughs> um, you definitely have a temporary period of a boost. There's definitely been research behind that. I just don't know what the time frame is. Gotcha. Yeah. Then my next question is, how important is like your body fat percentage towards athletics? Oh, that's a good one. That's a great question. Okay, so, okay, uh, I, I'm going to say it, it really, it depends. I know that's a horrible question, but it depends. No, it depends. I understand that answer, actually, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd say it really depends. I think it depends what you're striving for. It depends on other ratios as well. I think this is one of those times where I'm also going to say, truthfully, I'd be better off referring you to one of my buddies who can speak a bit for you to do this. Truthfully, um, I'm okay admitting I don't fully have an answer for you. I know it varies, but I can't spit out numbers towards you in, in regards to like what percentages you should be aiming for. Okay. My apologies. No, no, no. It's all good. Yeah. And then the last one is, have you ever, like, recommended or used, like, any CBD products or, like, used, like, their oils or anything? Yeah. Okay. So, I, I was going to say, I'm in Canada. So, CBD, like, uh, just became, all of that, those products basically became legal, what was it, a year ago today? Yeah, okay. California. Uh, that's where we're from. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was going to say, so you guys have had it for a lo- much longer time than I or <laughs> we have around here. Yeah. Um, typically, when it comes to CBD products in Canada, at least right now, um, the scripts are given from family doctors, or sometimes naturopathic doctors will kind of become involved in that conversation as well. It's a very big gray area. So truthfully, as a chiropractor, it's out of my scope of practice. I can't comment on any medication, and it's still considered kind of in that field. So truthfully, I can't comment on it legally, I, so we haven't really been educated on that way. Uh, pretty much when it comes to patients wanting to speak more about that i direct to family doctors and kind of go from there um i mean i have patients who are on it and swear by it that's why it's like some people are like i don't feel it and then some people like the other day i was talking to my friend and he's like yo so his friend plays in the american league for the detroit red wings like farm team and he says their doctor is just cbd products for recovery all the time and i'm like okay well what's this like is there a science behind it or is like and then they're like everyone just swears by it and i'm like (laughs) okay like no like i mean i i have i athletes on it i have older patients on it i even have younger patients on it and so, sometimes like sometimes it's this like the lotions sometimes it's the pills um i mean there's multiple different ways to yeah. consume shibuya, as we all know i i say some people swear by it like i've had some patients too who that, I, I always think it's funny when patients do this they'll do their own controlled study if we want to put <laughs> yeah. around it, right where they'll be like yeah like i stopped taking it for a week and i felt horrible and i took it and i felt great again so i mean i, I there's there are there is research behind it i think there's still a lot to be done um and like i said i'm on this side of the border so things are a little bit different it's just something that's become legalized up here so i i can't prescribe it to my patients i can't really technically comment on it yeah um, but i do know that my patients do some of them swear by it yeah okay gotcha <laughs> yeah, some of them swear by it and i mean there is research coming out to support it that's so. the thing is like research is like just starting to develop because it's just becoming bigger and bigger yeah. But, like, right now it's a lot of word of mouth. Like, people will be like, oh, I took it for a week and now I feel unbelievable. And it's like, you sure it's not mental? And they're like, no, yeah. no, 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 it's not mental. It's like, well, you'd be surprised how I, mental things can be. I mean, I, I, I think placebo is a beautiful thing. And, I mean, I think a lot of things we do is placebo. And I think a lot of it, too, is just habits, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's like you guys always with your, your wonderful playoff habits, right? Like, I mean, yeah. there's nothing – like, you don't wash your gear for three weeks. Uh, and, I mean, that's that's fine. That's what you guys do. I, I will never downplay the beauty of placebo. Yeah. Not to say, like, I, like I, I am an evidence-based practitioner. I – follow my research and I do that but there is part of pretty much everything we do that's going to be 
be placebo. And I'm never going to knock that. Yeah. If it's something that helps my patient get better or helps my athlete feel more successful in what they do, who cares? At, at the end of the day, if it makes you feel better, then it does. Uh, so I think, I think placebo is a beautiful thing. Whether there's placebo with CBD or not, you never know. You never know. I mean, like, there's there's been studies even out there just looking at medical pills. Like, d- based on the shape and the size of a pill, people respond differently. Uh, so, I mean... I've heard it, all this. I've, like, yeah, I, it, like, amazes me. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And yeah. it's... it's it's the, I just call it the beauty of placebo. It's the unknown. We don't know why it happens. We don't know why people react to it. Um, but at the end of the day, if it works for some people, then sure. Great. Awesome. I support it. I'm not going to knock it. Yeah. Me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, enjoy the rest. <laughs> no, that was yeah. awesome. I could talk Anytime, all day. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I couldn't give you detailed answers. No, no, no. I could. I no. I loved okay. all those answers. Okay, if, if you do want to have a deeper conversation, I'm more than happy to connect you with one of my colleagues who can probably give you a better answer on those two questions. Though. No, I don't know. I, I liked your answer right now. So if, <laughs> if they might give me the answers too in depth, I'll be like, oh, uh, yeah, not understanding. Yeah, so. sure. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, actually, I should take a whole bottle of CBD a day. <laughs> I think you'll be having a good time. I, 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 I feel relaxed. I think that's what everyone says. They feel relaxed. So. Yeah. All right, guys. Awesome. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Good, yeah, good seeing you. Yeah, you too. <laughs> All right. All right. So where do you want to take it from there? Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's okay. We work around it. <laughs> so I've seen that you've touched on before mechanical stress, and it was talking mostly about like pitchers and baseball. How would that relate to hockey, and what mechanical stress would be our worries? Yeah. So I think I think the first off is defining what mechanical stress is, mm-hmm. so people kind of understand what that is. When Okay, so simply broken down, our body has different tissues, right? So we've got bones, we've got cartilage, we've got muscles. And I mean, we've got many other things in our body. But those structures in our body, when we use them or loads are put through, there's different tensile forces that are kind of put through those structures. And we call those mechanical forces. Okay. So, I mean, there's, and as, as we put mechanical forces through, our body is able to adapt and become strong. Right. Mm-hmm. So similar to when we work out once, if we tried, I don't know, if you were to do a certain lift with a certain weight, you might feel sore. But if you kept doing that in training, you'd likely feel better over time. Right. So it's, it's kind of an example of how our body can adapt under mechanical stress. So we actually, to perform better and become better athletes overall, we want mechanical stress. That we want to load our bodies. I mean, there's, like I said, we can get into the nitty gritties. There's, there's lots of laws and scientific descriptions of these things. Um, but at the end of the day, what it is, is if, if we put load or our body under tension, our body is able to adapt and get stronger. It's really what kind of mechanical force and load comes down to. So, I mean, you referenced the example with the baseball pitchers. So to kind of give some preference for everyone listening, basically what, what the study showed, and it's an incredible study, is they looked at the humerus, which is the upper arm bone in a pitcher, and they compared their pitching side or their throwing side to their non-throwing arm. And what they found was that in our bone, there's an outer layer, and it's called the outer cortex, and it gets significantly thicker on the throwing arm compared to the non-throwing arm because of all of the force that they're repeatedly putting through their arm. Their body adapts by putting down more bone so it can handle more stress over and over. Because if we were, like, I mean, if me and you were to try and grab a ball and throw it at 92 miles per hour, our arm would probably, like, be A, in a ton of pain, if not snap in half. Like, the forces that <laughs> these pitchers put through their arms are incredible. And and that's a perfect example of how if you if you stress a body over and over and over again, it's going to adapt, right? That's, a, that's the best example. Their non-throwing arm to their throwing arm, it's in the same person. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> I mean, 
And, and truthfully, every athlete will have some level of adaptation based on what their sport demands. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel like we've been talking a bunch about hockey, so kind of looping it back into the hockey world. I mean, there's, I, I can't, I can't list a study off the top of my head. Um, but I mean, there has been research looking at, so the femur is the thigh bone, if you want to call it, in the, in the body. Um, and most hockey players are extremely explosive through their hips, right? Their glutes, their quads, their, um, hamstrings. And there's been studies looking at how their bone density is a little bit might be increased in the femur uh, just because of all the different forces that are putting through the area. Uh, but even to looking at the studies, like they have way more, way more strength and uh, their tendons are able to handle a lot more force because they're repeatedly loading them day after day after day. So that kind of, kind of answers the mechanical stress question. Yes. It does. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we got another question from the back. Yeah. If you were to give hockey players like four lifts in the gym or four things to do away from hockey, what would the four be? Four lifts? You want lifts or you want anything? Like it could be like hill sprints, like plyometrics, like squats, like any four things. Like what do you think would be the most, the four most important things for hockey players? Okay, so I'd say it's variability. At the end of the day, hockey players need to do more than just hockey. I mean, uh, you're making me pick four. (laughs) It's so tough. uh, This is a tough one. I don't know. Okay, you can do more too if you need more. Okay, I, I guess this is in, in what, what are the goal? Is the goal to be able to like hit max lifts or is the goal just to be a well-rounded being? I would say it would be to be on the ice feel like explosive uh-huh. and like know like your body on the ice. Like when you're on the ice, you're going to feel better if you do uh-huh. X, Y, Z off ice or something like that. It could be anything. Like it could be yoga. Like I, ever since I started okay. yoga, I've okay, felt yeah, better so on here. Uh, I'll, I'll go through. I'll, I'll keep it vague. Okay. okay. So I think I think it just sounds like we're talking general performance. Yes. Okay. So gener- general performance, or and even here, how about we'll toss in the injury prevention kind of Perfect. side of things. Okay. So when it comes to performance and general injury prevention, my big thing is just being a well-rounded athlete. So I would say for hockey. Okay, ideally, truthfully, having a solid mobility routine in there after. Okay, so whether that is yoga for you or you've got some go-to exercises to keep your body moving and limber, I think is huge. So I'd say some sort of, I mean, yoga, I don't know, have you heard of yoga yet? Take it off over here. Mm -hmm. It's a jock yoga is what they call it, yoga. I don't know. A lot of hockey players do it. It's the new thing. Or at least in my area, it seems to be the new thing. No, yeah, I think my buddy does it, but like they just call it a different name. So, it's, so I, I say some sort of mobility or joint work to keep your body moving. Yeah. Uh, notoriously speaking, and I mean, goalies are kind of their own little bubble. So I normally just say, notoriously speaking, though, gener- like hockey players typically have really tight, low, like hips and backs that don't want to move. So I would say having a program that really addresses that. I mean, generally, we're gonna keep. I'm going to keep it nice and general. Is you need a really strong strength program, and depending on your position, what your goals are, and what you're trying to achieve as a hockey player is also going to change what that strength program looks for you, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're trying to, if you have to hit certain lifts to make your national team, then you need to make sure you're training for that. If you're trying to just play house league and want to be like. And happy and healthy yeah. with all your buddies, then you don't need to train for max lifts, but yeah. you need to train your general lower body conditioning and also upper body strength. I do see a lot of, I'd say, amateur hockey players who necessarily aren't strength training upper body near enough. So when they do get into the contact or taking these hits and they don't have anything to support it. Too many shoulder separations, dislocations, or simply because they don't have the strength to actually withstand a hit. So I'd say generally we're going to keep it, like I said, global for now, is a, a strong strength program targeted towards what you want. Yeah. I also think nutrition is 
so undervalued. It's ridiculous, especially depending on where you are in your stage of your career. I mean, if you're young and you're an amateur athlete, most parents control diets, but a lot of it pretty much is hockey ring food and hockey ring food is not great. I mean, there's also lots of recovery meals. I think your nutritional intake is huge to also support the daily demands you're taking out of your body. If you're under nutrition, you're not going to get nearly the benefits compared to other players what they are. And then if I had to pick one more thing that every athlete should do, I think every athlete needs to address the psychological component and have um, a sport performance person on their team. I've heard that's number Um, one. A lot of people say like, well, obviously I talked to this guy this summer who's a sports psychologist Uh and he said like that's overlooked and in his book it should be number one. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm a chiropractor, so I'm going to probably, and I, I'm a strength coach that way as well. So I'm going to say your training and your injury prevention stuff is one, but truthfully, I, most of my athletes, um, I mean, I was talking about this a little bit earlier, um, but I, most of my athletes, I will kind of incorporate their whole team and the psychological component is massive. Athleticism is hard. Um, the other thing is too, is, is you, you have to be, you have to be resilient. You have to be tough. Um, you have to have the grit to get through all these things, um, being cut, making teams, getting injured, not being able to play, being able to wrap your mind about how are we going to get back? What's your new goal? There, there's a lot of grit and resilience required. And I don't think, I think it's becoming more prevalent where we talk about mental health and the psychological component, but I still think there's this part where it feels like a point of weakness to a lot of people to talk about that, right? It's, it's tough to talk about how frustrated they are or how they may be disappointed or upset about how they're playing. And I think it's it's very, very, very undervalued. So, like I said, I'm, I'm going to say they're all equally important, but I would say those would be the four things that every hockey player needs to be doing if they want to be performing at their best. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Cool. Perfect. Sorry, I, I was going to say, we started off with four lists, and then we switched to general. No, but yeah, I, 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 it's too general. hard to go, like, specific. Like, I mean, yeah. you're like a, a squat, and you're like, okay, well, that's, like, too generic, because then you could do this. So <laughs> I liked your answer way better than the way I, I like gave you the question so good, good adaptation <laughs> all right there you go there you go spoke being adaptable right exactly yeah. <laughs> well i've noticed that you're really big into setting goals you talk about writing down your goals and being accountable for them do you believe in manifestation and any other routes of creating success i mean people manifest and they do vision boards and things like that i'll, I'll be honest and saying personally i don't i do have a list of goals and i review them regularly because i, I think for me if you, if you make a list and you just kind of never really i to, to me if you have a list and you never really set dates or things of when you want to achieve those it's kind of a dream list mm-hmm. uh, and that's okay like maybe that works for you and that's how but for me i'm very goal oriented so i've always kept a list because if i write it down and i set a date if you set a date you are more likely to do it than if you're just write it down and say you know what hopefully one day it happens but i am also someone who very much takes the bull by the horns and says i'm going after this here we go and i i think I think when it comes to goal setting, it depends on the person. Um, some people are much better to write their list, have their vision boards, and manifest it in that way, and that's really what works for them. My approach isn't going to work for everybody. It's much more, hey, this is my goal, this is the date, and if anything, I've had to actually learn to be more flexible with myself, and this is the range of time frame I'm going to achieve it, rather than it's going to happen on, I don't know, October something, right? So I, I think setting goals, at the end of the day, I, I think truthfully to attain a goal, you still have to set a time frame of when you want to achieve it. But I do think achieving a goal and how you're, how that looks that for you might be different person to person. Definitely. And then what about your feels on mindset and atmosphere for success? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we just kind of touched on this a little bit, right? That comes back to the psychology component of it. Mindset is so undervalued. Um, at the end of the day, like I mentioned, like as an athlete, you need the resilience, you need the grit, you need to be comfortable in being wrong. 
You're going to do things that are, you're going to make plays that are wrong. You're going to get yelled at. You're going to make decisions that weren't in your best favor. And I mean, I think just generally speaking, though, backing that up to we're all people. We're going to make mistakes. So whether it's with athleticism or not, we're going to make mistakes and we need to get comfortable with that. And and I think mindset's huge because it teaches you how to respond in those situations rather than necessarily just reacting, right? Depending on your mindset, you can you can do better because of it. Um, and I mean, even too, like looking at like activities you don't want to do. This is one that I, I think I joked about this uh, with someone the other day, um, or maybe I made a post. I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere I was talking about this, and it was a, it was advice that was given to me. Uh, her name is Emma, and she's phenomenal. Um, and it was when you're going to do something that you don't want to do, think about how can you make it more fun. Right? Like how, how can you make, uh, let's say I don't want to, I don't know, clean the floor. Okay. We're going to toss on music and make it a lot more fun. Or for me, I'm doing patient notes. Maybe I'm sending out some emails that are a bit more redundant. How do I make it more fun? Maybe I'm going to light a candle, grab my favorite blanket and kind of relax that way. Right. So I do think mindset can change a lot from something as simple as making that TV you don't really want to do a bit more enjoyable to how do we get through those tough times. I like that. And that kind of leads us into the failing forward. Do you want to elaborate on what that is? Yeah. And it's, it's something I won't take credit for it at all. It, Emma Jack. Yeah, she's awesome. She That's actually where I got the concept for it. I, uh, and I'm, I've done a few initiatives um, through Level Up and a, some organizations. So I, I won't take credit for this idea of failing forward. Um, I'm not the first person to ever talk about it. Um, but I do think it's a phenomenal topic to discuss. And, and what it is is recognizing that we are all going to fail. And rather than seeing a failure and backing up and saying, I'm not good enough, whatever that thought might be around that failure, it's recognizing what did you learn from it and how do you move forward. Mm-hmm. Truthfully, we only become better by getting uncomfortable by doing things that we don't want to do. Um, and that's, that's what makes us move forward. But truthfully, those things, we're going to fail while doing some of them. You're not going to be great at everything. I mean, I mean, power to you if you're passing everything, but <laughs> your things, things in life are going to come up and you're going to try them and they're not going to go well. So it's recognizing how, how do we learn from it? How did it make you better? And not to kind of mull over it and think about all the bad things that happen. It's more, what did you learn and how do we proceed and how did that make you better? I mean, I, I can look back on a hundred different situations that I've been in where I, I tried something or even just a situation that it, it didn't go how I thought it would go. And it's, it's how I moved forward. It's, it's made me a better person. It's made me a better practitioner. And I think that can apply to once again, athleticism, but also just being a better person. You're going to make mistakes. And it's also recognizing that it's okay to say that you made mistakes and it's okay to say you failed. And that's part of accepting those words or part of you moving forward and becoming a better person as well. Yeah, there's a, there's an awesome, if you want a YouTube uh, video to watch, or sorry, a TED Talk to watch or a um, a book to read, it's called Being Wrong by Catherine, ah, I'm blanking on her last name, um, but it's called Being Wrong. She's got a TED Talk, it's awesome. It's basically about how the world is bettered by mistakes. Um, and it kind of goes into the psychology of it as well. Uh, really, really good type talk. I think it's like a 20 minute one. She does a phenomenal job. Uh, and I've read her book. It's really good as well. I just Googled it really fast. It's Catherine Schultz. There you go. I, I'm the worst at remembering last names sometimes, but yeah, Catherine Schultz, she did. It's a great book. Yeah. Great book. Um, and she, she has some great TED talks that kind of get into that concept of as well as it's okay with being wrong and why we struggle as humans to be wrong. We're basically taught our whole lives to pass tests and be good at everything and failing means that we're not good in, in the world. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting concept, but truthfully, I think once again, a lot of athletes and people should read, even there's one there's called, res, uh, it's called resilience by, oh, I'm blanking again. Uh, he's a, um, Navy SEAL. It's called resilience. Sorry, I'm blanking on the name. 
but it's also a phenomenal book that I think most people should read as well. So I know a lot of athletes probably get down on themselves during the recovery period. What is a good expectation that they should set out during like recovery from any injury? Uh-huh. <laughs> I wish I had a better answer again, but it, I think it depends again is going to be my answer. I, Depending on the injury, the recovery is going to look much different. Mm-hmm. Um, some athletes, it's a really simple sprain, strain. Okay, here's your time frame. Keep a positive mindset. We're going to get you back to your sport. This is your time frame. And then there's truthfully the honesty of there's going to be injuries that are going to take a lot more to them. Some might require surgery, the pre-op, the post-op. It's a long road. So I, I think I'd say it really depends, and it should be guided hopefully by a, a really good healthcare team around you. So that way they have the proper expectations of what should come from it. Um, and as long as they have the right expectations and that's being communicated towards them or to them, typically I find recovery goes a lot better and they can have the appropriate mindset to kind of combat all those things. And, I mean, if they are someone who had to go through, per se, a surgical procedure, they, they've got a good team that can help support them as they go through because there will most certainly be ups and downs. So it's, it's hard for me to say kind of exactly what mindset you should have because it depends on your injury and it depends on your history of injuries too and, and where you're at and what you're trying to achieve. Gotcha. Perfect. And then before Tyler came in, so we were talking about breathing and the oxygen levels. And I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast where they were talking fully about just doing breathing exercises and how good that is for the brain and everything. Do you think that athletes benefit from breathing exercises? And are there any that you recommend or have heard of? Yeah, breathing is awesome. It's one of the easiest things we can control when we consciously do it. Um, my favorite, and I teach a lot of my patients and athletes, is uh, belly breathing. And really, I guess here, we can do it together if you want. We can all do this all together. Uh, so pretty much what the concept breaks down to is if you put one hand on your chest and one on your belly. Okay. So I'll, I'll challenge everyone to take a big breath in. And let's take two or three breaths and see kind of what hand moves more. So I'll give you all a second. <laughs> there you go. Now... Making note of what hand moves more, typically people, most most people will say their chest is the one that most of their breath comes from. But the concept of belly breathing is actually that most of breathing should come predominantly from your stomach. Okay. Now, obviously, our chest needs to move a little bit because our lungs are in there, especially if you're max exerting. But sitting on a chair or laying on your back, most of the breathing should come from your belly. If you've ever watched a belly or a baby breathe, it's all from their belly. And what the concept of this is, is that it's going to help really work on diaphragmatic breathing. And through diaphragmatic breathing, it's one of the fastest ways we can calm our body down. So in our nervous system, we have, sorry, we have our fight or flight or our like rest and relax state. And by doing belly breathing, it can take us from that really sympathetic state, that fight or flight, and take us into a rest and relaxed. Um, so I'm a huge, or I'm a huge supporter of belly breathing. I encourage a lot of my patients to do it. Also, too, if they're struggling with anxiety attacks, things like that. Now, obviously, get a therapist. Definitely, we need to co-manage that. Um, but breathing is a common technique that a lot of therapists will treat their patients or uh, teach their patients. I even use it as a pain control mechanism with a lot of my patients too. When pain is just becoming really overwhelming and you're kind of going into the spiral of, oh my gosh, stop for a second and work on 10 belly breaths. Um, so I mean, that's something everyone can apply today. And I, you can even use it before bed to help you fall asleep. Perfect. And then on top of your awesome resume, I noticed that you're also <laughs> certified in TRX. What oh, yeah. got you interested in that? Yeah, so TRX, I actually got that while I was re- working pretty much remotely um, when our clinic was temporarily closed and switched virtually. So I, I also have a certification, um, a certified strength and conditioning coach. I and mean, I think TRX is one of the coolest options you can do when you have minimal equipment. 
So, I mean, I've always used TRX personally. I thought it's awesome. I, I have the straps. And what I recognized is that I'd actually never taken a technical course. So I took the certification to basically broaden my knowledge and see, am I actually using these straps correctly or what new things can I try with my athletes? Um, and it was, it was good. It taught me some new things. And I've, uh, I've obviously incorporated a bit more into people's training programs as a result. Do you think it's easier on the joints and stuff because it's all body weight? So... I, I actually, I, I found it, yes. I, I say I found it helpful for certain patients. Mm-hmm. Um, even too, like I've got lots of patients who are kind of in that point of, am I getting a new replacement? Kind of stalling the surgery date a little bit. Um, and it's really helpful because you can use upper body to take pressure off or even work more on um, some simple mechanics like hip hinging and things like that. It can be, the straps can help a lot with that. So yeah, I, I'd say it's, it's a really good, it's easy to use. It can be extremely challenging. Like my my athletes were like, I'm the toughest. You can't do anything harder for me. I'm like, yeah, let me put you on TRX straps for a second. Um, and you can come up with some really cool, incredible balance thing that require full body. So, I mean, I think you can make it as basic as possible for patients who need a little bit more weight taken off of them. And um, I mean, obviously not the same as going in a pool, but still you can take, you can make some modifications to reduce tension, mm-hmm. uh, but you can also challenge to go on the other side of the extreme. You can challenge people in incredible ways. Um, so I'm almost, I'm pretty sure the designer of TRX is a Navy SEAL is what it was originally created from. Oh, yeah. really? I didn't know yeah, that. I, I'm pretty sure it was Navy SEAL. It's someone, is someone, it was Army or, no, I'm pretty sure it's Navy SEAL. Yeah. So it was, it was basically made, um, the, the guy wanted another way to train and he came up with the concept of these straps and that's where I went from there. Oh, yeah. very cool. Yeah, really cool. Yeah. So TRX is awesome. Yeah. Nice. They're phenomenal. Yeah. We've gone through all of the questions. The only thing left I would have to ask is if you had anything else to add in for our hockey demographic, anything you can think of that they would benefit from or should be aware of. Uh, honestly, I think we've covered the majority. When we talked about kind of the four main things an athlete should do, I think, I mean, just to kind of sum it up, we've gone through it's important to have the appropriate mindset and therapy team to help you with that. Um, nutrition is a wonderful thing. Your rest and recovery, which is a component of, once again, sleep that we talked is important, uh, but also your training program. Um, and on top of that, having a, a team environment that you really enjoy. So I, I think speaking overall, I think we've covered the vast majority of things. I mean, we can go into the nitty gritties, as you can see, for, for many little topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think generally speaking, for people tuning in today, this was probably a good overview. Perfect. Well, thank yeah. you so much for letting me interview you. Yeah, for any time. Thank you very much for asking me to come on. This has been phenomenal. So mm-hmm. I loved it.